Okay, guys, today we're looking at Genesis chapter 14 um, and some other stuff later, but we'll start here. So if you're using the church Bibles, that's page 10, so not very far in. Cool. I think that means everyone's ready. Cool. Uh, So chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. In those days, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Bob, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, waged war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemebah, king of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is, Zor. All of those came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea. They were subject to Bob for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Bob, and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, then the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated all the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in the Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and lined up for battle in the valley of Sidim against Bob, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elazar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled into the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was at the Oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eskol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, attacked them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. This is a joke. Yes, it is meant to be funny. Okay, I want you to imagine... <laughs> yeah, that's really hopeful at this point in time, isn't it? Okay, uh, who's the dictator of North Korea at the moment? We'll call him Kim. All right. Anyway, Kim gets a phone call. And, yeah. Hello. I don't do a North Korean accent. Hello. I do do an Irish accent. Hello. That's Paddy here. I'm from uh, the pub in over here in Ireland, and uh, some of the guys and I, we've had a bit of a chat about what you're doing in North Korea. We're not very happy about it. And so there's about 15 of us, and we've decided that we're going to invade North Korea. You're going to invade us? Yes. I have one million men and women ready to fight and die for me. Right. We might get back to you then. A week later, another phone call. Hello. It's Paddy again. Just letting you know the invasion's still on. We've had a chat with the guys in the next village. We're now up to 30 guys, and we've got a tractor, and we're not afraid to use it. 
I now have two million men and women willing to die for me and 20,000 tanks. Right. We'll get back to you. Next week, bring them. Hi, it's Paddy here again. Just letting you know the invasion's still on. Uh, news has got about, around about our invasion, and we've, uh, we're up to 50 men. We've got two tractors, and we've got a crop-dusting plane, so we're airborne now, too. I have 3 million men and women willing to die for me. I have 20,000 tanks, and I have 10,000 planes. Right. Um, we'll get back to you then. Next week? Hello, it's Patty here. I suppose you're here to tell me that the invasion is still on. Uh, actually, no, we've decided to ring and let you know we've called off the invasion. Is that because of our huge, intimidating numbers? Um, well, kind of. We had a bit of a think about it, and we decided we didn't know where to put all the prisoners of war. Like I said, it was funny. That was a joke. <laughs> thanks, Annie. That was, uh, was what I was after there. Thank you, and uh, thanks, Sonny. Appreciate that. But do you ever, I don't know, uh, do you ever feel a bit like Patty? <laughs> you know, like, as a church, you know, you sit there and you read passages in the Bible that talk about the church is the manifold wisdom of God, that the church, Jesus says, the church is the bride of Christ, that Jesus says, I will build my church. And then you kind of look around today, especially today, you look around and you're kind of going, really? This is it? This is the manifold wisdom of God. This is the bride of Christ. And, and it may be that you're also thinking about people who do these amazing things for God. And you're going, really? Because I'm barely holding on to life with my fingernails right now. And, and you're suggesting, hey, let's go do these great things for God. How could God use me? And you might be looking around going, how could God use us as a church? We're so little. So many people who are sick. Well, if that's you today, I'm glad you're here. This is what this passage is all about. I'm going to pray that God will help us to understand it better. Um, I should point out, we're actually going to do this in two talks, okay? So we're going to do the first part, in, in case you're wondering, hey, we got through that talk pretty quick and now we're starting again. Two talks, but they're both covering the same idea. And the idea is, how big is God? So let me pray. Father, I want to pray now that you'll help us to put aside any distractions that we might have. Help us, those of particularly who are here today who are sick, uh, as there just seems to be a, a huge cold going right throughout our city. Help us to be able to concentrate on what you are saying. Help us to know what a great, huge God you truly are. Give us a vision for that today and help me to speak your words faithfully and truthfully and powerfully as I should. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you, you caught everything that was going on there um, in uh, the reading uh, that Blake gave us. Blake did very well. Uh, they were. <laughs> I, I felt for whoever was going to get this Bible reading. And frankly, uh, Blake was running just a little bit late today and I thought, oh no, if he's not here, I'm going to have to do the Bible reading and I don't want to go through all those names. And you'll notice that I'm just going to skip over them. So, yeah. But I want you to come down with me to um, what's, what, what is actually going on there. You can see there at the end of verse 9 that there's a big battle. Four kings against five. Now, when I first read this, I thought four kings versus five, you know, that's kind of, kind of evenish. Maybe the five kings got a bit more of an advantage. But let me, you need to understand who these kings are and what's going on to understand the significance of all of this. All right? 
Let me give you a, this is a quick map of uh, where everything is. Um, so you recognise that, you've got the Mediterranean over here, uh, you've got sort of uh, Sinai just down here, over here is sort of Iraq, Iran, okay? Did I get that right? Okay. Now, the different kings, the, I, I don't know how many people recognise any of those kingdoms, empires? Okay, Shinar is kind of it sounds a little bit familiar. That's basically would be the the foundation of the Babylonian kingdom. All right. Uh, then you've got another one called Elam. Uh, Elam is sort of just a little bit north, and he, he that is the big superpower of the day at the time. You've got another one called uh, Goim. No, I didn't misspell that. That's apparently the way you spell it. Um, Actually, why don't you guys tell me where they are in the... the I, I, you know, I bought the wrong Bibles and I didn't bring my glasses, so we're just going to have to bear with this as much as I can. Um, no, where... Can someone tell me where they... Oh, there we are, at the top. Yeah. Shina, uh, Arioch, the king of Alassa, uh, Bob, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goim, and the only one I haven't put there is uh, the king of Alessa, and that's sort of that area there, okay? So these are four big kingdoms and these are the four biggest kingdoms as far as we can work out of that period of time okay so they're the four kings the five kings are there uh did you see that there's a little little purple spot just here like all five kings are in that that kind of area just let me try and modernize this a little bit for you and and they're not really kingdoms they're kind of thing imagine on one hand you've got uh, let me go over here you've got china the US, the UK, and Russia decide to form an alliance. You go, would that ever happen? These four kingdoms forming an alliance, that's about how unlikely it is. But, you know, they form this alliance, they're going to take over the world. And so they begin flying all over, taking over the world. And over here, you've got um, Samoa, Fiji, New Caledonia, Vanuatu, and New Zealand. And they decide to form an alliance. They're going, we are not going to let these guys take us over. And, uh, and so they're going to rebel, these, these island nations rebel. And so what they do is they shoot, if you like, an air-to-air missile and they shoot one of the planes down. And um, the US are sort of like, are there people down there? Okay, we better go and deal with that. Um, and so they go and deal with this. And, and the, if you can imagine the island nations, their response to, oh no, we're about to be invaded by the US, UK, Russia and China, is everyone head for the water. Like, that's, that's about as sensible as it is. And that's what these five kingdoms are like. They are little kingdoms. They don't even really register. When these guys come down, they come down from the north, they actually bypass the five kingdoms, the valley, and they keep going and they take on all these other guys that aren't really relevant to our story at the moment. And they kind of catch these guys on the way back because they, they, they go, right, we're going to take on the, the big four. They're going, really? That wasn't a smart move. And this is particularly true... When you see uh, the geography of this, let me give you a picture of what this is like. Uh, so that little valley there, you can see right in the middle, uh, Sodom, Gomorrah and the other three cities are right sort of in the middle of a valley. Actually, that blue should really be asphalt pits, right? So that you should use to your military advantage. You want to get your enemies in there. But the guys, uh, the, the five kingdoms come basically de- sweep down through that valley. They've got the height advantage. They come down and the guys go, quick, everyone run into the asphalt pits and are killed. And so when you get to the, va- when you actually get to the, um, the battle itself, and this is the first recorded war in the Bible. Um, the, this, this is basically the, the valley. Uh, so verse uh, 10 
Now the valley of Sidim contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, that was the battle. They didn't even stand up. They just they fled, and uh, the um, and some of them fell in uh, to the, the asphalt pits, and the rest of them fell to the uh, fled to the valleys. Uh, sorry, to the mountains. So they go back up into the mountains on the other side. But in all of this, verse twelve, they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom and went on. Now we've been looking at the life of Abram and uh, his, his confidence in God. That's been the thing that we focused on over the last couple of weeks. And so now we're kind of going, how is he going to respond to this? One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was at the Oaks belonging to Memre, the Amorite, which is where he was, and the brother of Eschol, the brother of Anar, and they were bound by treaty with Abram. And when Abram heard about his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, this is a little bit like saying, okay, uh, the US, UK, that, that alliance come in, they take over New Zealand and uh, Craig's from New Zealand, he's got, a, he's got a cousin over there called Bryce, I've got that right. Bryce has been taken prisoner and I go, guys, we need to go and rescue Bryce from Guantanamo Bay. Who's with me? And you can see people going, um, well, let me think, have you got any weapons? Not really. Have you got more men coming? No. Have you got any military training? Not really. Have you got a plan? Um, no. But we can do this. Like, when you take 318 men up against the four biggest nations, military nations in the world, this is quite an extraordinary thing. And yet, God, uh, Abram prevails. So, verse 15, and then he and his servants deployed against them at night, attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobar to the north of Damascus. He brought back back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and other people. Now, Abram prevails. Now, I don't know whether it's a case of that when they went up to attack, uh, all of the... um, all the, the, you know, the big soldiers already moved on and they were basically getting the rear guard where all the prisoners were, I don't know, or maybe it was... But what I do know is God was with them and he takes 318 men and you've got to ask the, the 318 men, how confident would they be in God at this point of time? To follow a guy who has no military training, no weapons, no extra guys, no real plan and yet they go with him and they fight and they win. They take back, um, they take back Lot, they take back all the other things that have been taken from them. Shouldn't have really happened, should it? It's an extraordinary story. But then, this is the kind of story we have in the Bible all the time, isn't it? This is how God works in the world. You go and look at other great battles in the Bible. Tell me about some of the other great battles of the Bible. Just give me another battle. Yeah, you've got Jericho. So Joshua is told, you're going to go and destroy the city of Jericho with a trumpet. Go, really? Yeah, I'm going to go trumpet and everyone's just going to shout and the walls will fall down. I, I'm thinking, I want a bit more of a military plan than that. But he does that, yeah. What else? Anyone else? Yeah, David and Goliath. A little kid, about Calvin's age, going up against this huge big giant. Well, he's a, bit, a little bit older than Calvin, going up this huge big giant. Anyone else? Gideon, I love this one. Hey, Gideon, I want you to go and fight the Philistines and you're going to need a torch and a trumpet. Yeah, what about the sword and the machine gun and that sort of thing? No, don't worry about that. Just the, the, the trumpet. And each time God just keeps using these things. Or Moses, Moses is taking on a, another thing. And he said, okay, Moses, the only thing you need to do is put your hands up in the air. You go, okay, it's going to be great for the charismatic movement. But they put their hands up in the air. And, all, and as soon as his hands go down, they start losing. They keep putting your hands up in the air. You're going to win. 
It's weird. But each time it is God who does this. The biggest picture of we see this is, of course, Jesus. Who is Jesus? What, what did Jesus actually do? He's a guy from nowhere. He didn't marry, you know, he didn't live in a prestigious family. He lived in a, a family that was so poor that when they had to do the, the sacrifices for him as a young kid, they had to do, choose the, the poor option rather than the um, expensive option. Uh, he never wrote a book. He never wrote a blog. He never had a Facebook account. I know, for some of you going, really? People do that? Uh, he never, he spent most of his ministry sleeping on the side of the road or in other people's houses. He never held a title. Never, well, I mean, he never, his big achievement was to die. And even when he died, he had eight guys with, sorry, he had 12 guys with him. One of them was the guy who betrayed him. And then when he went to do this great achievement, they all took off. And the only people who were left with him were the women who were following him. That's his great big achievement. That's his crowning glory. How successful is this guy? And yet, he is. When Paul reflects on this, he says this. When Jews ask for signs and Greeks for seek wisdom, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. He's saying, you know, you want to look at the cross, they go, well, how... How, you know, how powerful is the cross? Well, it's not. Well, how smart is the cross? It's not. And he keeps going. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. But when you look at the cross, you go, how powerful? God defeated death at the cross. How powerful is that? God shows his glory by taking a guy who just should have been a failure and that is how we are reconciled into his family. He is the king. God takes dumb and foolish things and that's how God works. Same with the church. As a church, can we do great things? Not because we are small, but yes, but yes, but not because we are small, but because God is big. And I want you to remember that in your prayers, as you pray. You don't pray because of what we, you know, we go, well, we'll pray that we will get 50 people because, you know, that's about as much as we can handle. You pray, we pray that we'll have 50 people and more because God is big and he is great and he is able to do that. But what about you? God can work through you. Now, I know that for a lot of you, life is really in survival mode. All right? You're just holding on by your fingertips. That's, that's bad. And you're saying, you want me to do great things for God? I'm barely, like, I get up in the morning, and a good day for me is I get to the end of the day. Like, that, I'll consider that a good day. And yet, I want to ask you to, to pray to God. Say, I want to be used by you in that. Because God doesn't use the great and the mighty and the smart. He uses us he uses us the people who are on the edge the people who are barely making it the people who don't aren't the the intelligent ones the people who have titles but we do need to turn up for him you notice in each of these things people need to turn up in order to do this and it's because god works through his spirit in people that's how he does things 
God could do this by himself, but he chooses to work through his spirit. And he gives us his spirit and he gives us his spirit so that he can do powerful things through us. Not because we are powerful. And most of you go, I really don't feel powerful at the moment. This is the moment where God does work through us. It might be as simple as um, as you being at work. And I remember uh, we, we were doing this in our, our gospel community, hearing about a guy who just basically... Uh, they had this, uh, he, he works as a journalist and they had this day at work and he barely survived the, the day. I mean, everyone barely survived the day, but he managed to do it by remaining patient, calm, basically what we would call remaining godly. He, he did it through the whole thing and his boss called him in and said, does this have anything to do with you being Christian? He didn't really know, but he said, well, let me tell you what it means to be Christian anyway. And he said, that was the first time I'd ever explained to anyone what it meant to be, meant to be a Christian. It's through the hard time and through where we're barely holding on that we rely on God, that we turn to God. That's when he actually does great things. Not because we are great, but because he is big and he is mighty. So let me ask you, when was the last time you asked God to use you? When was the last time you asked him to give his spirit to you in a way that is powerful so that you might do great things for him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at the next part of the passage. Father, thank you so much that Abram turned up, that he fought the battle, even though you look at it in human terms, it really wasn't going to win. But you won the battle. And Father, we know this because 318 men can't defeat those nations. So we want to give you glory for that. And Father, we want to pray that for those moments in our lives where we know we can't do something and we need to turn to you for strength, for, for the ability to do it, we pray that we will stop and give you the glory and recognise that it's you doing it because it couldn't have been us. So Father, we ask that you will help us, especially when we are tired, when we are in survival mode, that you will help us to think of how we can do great things for you but more importantly, that we'll pray that your spirit will empower us and that he will do mighty things through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blake's going to read the next part to us. Cool, guys. We're going to read two passages this time. Um, so we'll start in Genesis 14 again. It's on page 10 of the Church Bibles, starting at verse 17. Cool. After Abram returned from defeating Bob and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shevar, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say, I made Abram rich. I'll take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Hanar, Eskol, and Mamre, 
they can take their share. Cool. And the next passage we'll look at is uh, Hebrews 7, which, using the church Bibles, will be page 1018. So, just on the other end. So Hebrews 7, uh, just verses 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything first, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, remains a priest forever. Okie dokie. So, first talk, we're looking at how God works. And it really, the way that God works doesn't usually work the way we think things would work. So, you know, you ask me to go to Guantanamo Bay, I want more than 318 men who don't know how to fight. I want a plan, I want military experience, I want to know what's going on. And yet God is saying, no, 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 you need to work my way. You need to see it through my eyes, and that is to see how great God is, how big he is. And this interaction makes things even clearer on that. Abram gets back, he's got the spoils of this. Abram, he's, he, he actually does go up against the thing because he understands that God has promised to care for him. And he is trusting in that promise. He has great confidence in that promise. And so... Um, he comes back and he has basically, he sits down and has a meal with two kings, uh, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Melchizedek has to be one of the weirdest guys in the Bible. So much so that if, you, uh, if you're you know, going, working through this with our gospel communities on the back, and if you, you don't have to wait till you go through our gospel communities, I've given you a whole bunch of information and that's all the information we know about Melchizedek. And uh, he, gets, uh, he gets picked up quite a bit in uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, but you find all sorts of weird things that he is um, he's different he is uh, he is both a king and a priest uh, this is something that the book of Hebrews picks up because his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness uh, so he's the king of Salem in verse 18 and he brings out bread and wine and yet he acts uh, like a priest so in verse 20 Abram gives him a tenth of everything which is the kind of thing you give to a priest now in the Old Testament let me explain why it's a big thing in the Old Testament these are two different tribes of the Old Testament people. One of them are priests and one of them are kings and you don't confuse them. And if you want to see what happens when you do, there's a guy called Saul in 1 Samuel and he comes around and goes, I'm a king but I'm going to act like a priest and God says, well, that's it, you're sacked, you're done, we are not having you as a king anymore. You don't confuse those two. And I think it's got to do with too much power, I don't know. But everyone except for Jesus, you're either a king or a priest or you're, not, you're neither. You never get to be king and priest. Except for Jesus... And except for this guy, Melchizedek. And it doesn't, he doesn't fit the categories nice and neatly. Uh, where did he come from? I mean, he's the guy who, um, uh, at this stage, Abram's really the only guy who understands who God is. And yet Melchizedek steps on stage, and what does he say? Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. This guy is worshipping the same God that Abram's doing. 
Well, where did he come from? How did he know about God? Where does that fit in? I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't understand here. And then you get uh, this weird passage in Hebrews. He's without father, mother or genealogy, having uh, neither uh, beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. Now, how does that work? Like, how did he get to be there if he didn't have a mum and a dad and... Like, how did that work in terms of uh, he had neither beginning or days nor end of life? I mean, does that mean he was, he was sinless? I don't think so. But again, all of the categories that we're so used to working through in the Bible, he, Melchizedek breaks them all. That's my point. Breaking the rules, breaking categories all over the place. He's like Jesus. He's not the same as anyone else. But the only thing that matters to Abram is not whether he fits the categories. There is only one thing that matters to Abram, and that was... Did he understand who God was? Is he on God's side? And this is one of the lessons we need to learn from this, that God, we've got to be careful we don't put God in a box so much that we don't work with people who aren't on God's side. Uh, We see this in a couple of places. Let me show you a couple of places where um, the apostles uh, in the book of Acts uh, there were people who weren't Jewish who were becoming Christian. We're really thankful for that because I don't think anyone here has got a Jewish background. No, okay, so we're all in that category. And when the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had welcomed God's message also, uh, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, they, those who stressed the circumcision argued with him, saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then he went on to explain, yeah, but they became Christians, so we've got to accept them in. We've got to not think about the categories. We've got to look at what God is doing and work with that. Or you can see it again when, uh, when Jesus with, with some disciples. John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because he wasn't following us. He wasn't part of us. And Jesus said, Don't stop him because there is no one who is able to perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak ill of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. In both cases, we're saying what God can do is what's important. And we can't, we've got to be careful not to put God into certain categories. There's this great interaction in the book of Joshua where Joshua is just uh, about to go up into the uh, uh, fight up the city, the city of Jericho. And uh, while they're trying to work out what they're going to do, he comes across this guy and he goes, are you with us or are you with our enemies? And the guy happens to be an angel of God. And the guy says, I'm not with you or with your enemies. I'm with God. You, it's not about whose side I'm on. It's whether you're on my side. Because I am with God and you have to make your decision. Are you going to be with me or are you, are you going to be against me? We need to start asking, not whether can God do this or what God isn't doing, but ask the question, what is God actually doing? Even if it doesn't fit our categories, our systematic little boxes nice and neatly. And th- this means that the way we do church is going to be different, and different p- for different people. Uh, we're going to probably finish this up in about an hour. In Africa, that would be extraordinary. That you would have a church service that would go for less than six hours would be considered short. Some of you are going, six hours? Are you kidding? Man. Let me tell you, it's a lot of singing. We do very little singing here. Does it mean that God is working there and he's not working here? No. Does it mean that God's working here but not that? No. The question is not... Are, are people doing things our way? The question is, Is God? what is God doing? And is, are, are they in tune with what God's doing? And are we in tune with what God's doing? And we've got to be careful not to put boundaries on things, but we do know his character, we do know his plan, and we can work out what, for what it means to be on God's side. I'll come back to that in a moment. But let me come back to the other king, king of Sodom. 
Uh, he's watching all this interaction. So, you know, he kind of goes, he, uh, let me ver- read from verse 18. He goes, the, the king of Melchizedek, king of Salem, bought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. And he blessed him and said, Abram is really blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And give praise to the God most high who handed your enemies over to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And I think Sodom's there going, okay, you know, these guys obviously got something going here and I want in. Because he just got 10% out of it and he wasn't even attacked. Right, he just got an extra 10%, so I'll just try and sneak in here. Then, verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. Now, let me just stop there for a second. King of Sodom had just been defeated and had everything taken off him. What does he actually deserve from Abram? Anyone? Nothing. All right, so for him to come up and go, I'll, let, I'll tell you what, I'll take the people, but I'll let you keep the possessions, Okay. It's outrageously arrogant because he's got... Abram didn't have to give him anything and for... I'll let you keep the possessions. It's okay. But Abram is incredibly generous here. And I want you to think, Abram, again, like the last chapter, he's not thinking about what he can get out of here. What is he thinking about? He's thinking about the promise of God. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord... God most high creator of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you and so you can never say I made Abram rich I will take nothing except the servants what the servants have eaten as for the share of the men that came with me Ana, Ashkol and Memre they can take their share but he's saying I don't want anything you take everything I don't want, even, I don't want anything from you I don't even want your, your, your um, Havianas uh, nothing because he understands that a partnership here is not with someone who, who gets the promise. He understands that this is not a guy who understands who God is. He's going, not only will I give you people back, I'm going to give you everything back because I don't want you to come back later on when God is blessing me and say, hey, yeah, Abram, remember, we had that thing going back after you defeated that army. He's going, no, I am not with you. But Melchizedek, I'm with him because he understands who God is. You get it? Here's the thing. God is big. God is big, bigger than the categories that we often think he has. Like we kind of go, oh, God is like this and God does this. Actually, you know what? God is an eternal being. Three persons eternally in relationship with each other. Try and get your head around that. That is how big God is. That's how great God is. He is bigger and greater than anything. And, and while we're trying to understand him, what we need to do is we often put things into nice little systematic boxes so we can kind of get our head around it. But we've got to keep in mind that God, he, gets, he spills out of those boxes. Those boxes are there to help us, but that's more there. there's more to God than there is there. And we must be careful that we see how big God is. Do you see how big God is? But you tend to kind of go, oh God, he's just this kind of thing that's off there somewhere. And God is a big God. He is a sovereign God. Every single moment is in his hand. Every single army battle is in his hand. Everything is in God's hand. The thing is that when we look at that joke about Paddy and the North Korean dictator, we are Paddy. What we are trying to do is is way beyond our ability to do it. But we are not alone. We have a big God 
And it's not about how small we are, but it's how big he is. That's what matters. That's why we need to keep in mind how big is God? How great is God? How extraordinary is God? Have you lost sight of that? We kind of just turn the volume down on God, don't we? We kind of go, God, yeah, he's big. And we tend to think big like a double-decker bus. But no, I mean big as in holds solar systems in his hand and yet knows every hair on your head. And the question is, not that God, that God is big, but he also works. And the question we need to ask is, and the question we need to ask about, about what we're doing in terms of mission, in terms of reaching people with the good news of Jesus, is not, how, how do I get God's work going here? Because God is already at work there. God is big. He is already there. He's already doing stuff. If he was sitting back waiting for you guys, for us, I don't think anything would get done. So God is already doing this. The question is not, what is God, what, what, what do I do to get God going? But the question is, what is God doing here? What is God doing in your neighborhood? What is God doing in your workplace? What is God doing in your family? Have you stopped to think, what is God doing here? Because he is such a big God that he is doing something. Sometimes it might be hard to see. But I think we need to sort of start going, oh, what? I don't have time for God. I don't have time to do stuff. I don't have time to do mission. I don't have time. Actually, you know what? God is already doing stuff around you. It's not a matter of finding more time to do things. It's merely a matter of looking around going, what is God doing here and how do I get into it? Not more stuff, but understanding what he is doing now. Because God is a big God. He's bigger than our categories. He's bigger than our plans sometimes. Having confidence in what he is doing is the important thing. Turning up and praying that his spirit will work in us to do powerful things. And then asking the question, what is God doing? What is he doing around me? in me what is he teaching me because he's certainly not sitting back and waiting he's doing stuff i'm going to pray and then i'll try and answer any questions that you might have father thank you so much for your word to us father just help us to get a picture of how great and big you are Help us not to get so caught up on how little we are, how little time we have, how little energy we have, how little resources we have, but help us to think about what a great God you are and what you are doing in the world. Father, we thank you so much that you work in us and through us to do incredible and amazing things. So open our eyes to see what you are doing. Open our hearts to have confidence in what you are doing. Help us to be a part of what you are doing. You are a big God who is redeeming your people and building your church and calling people who have been appointed to eternal life. Help us not to waste our small, precious life that we have here on this planet. And help us, help us to be a part of what you are doing.
Amen. Any questions or comments you want to make? I'll have a glass of water. Sorry. Take a water? I'm going to get sick too now. Any questions, comments? Uh, Sonny. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of ambiguity here, and I can't work it all out. But let me tell you what the ambiguity is. Abram's there, and he's camped next to uh, three other guys. Um, you can see it there in verse 13. Uh, Mamre the Amorite, his brother Eschol, and the brother of Anir. So he's there, I think, with three other brothers. And there are men from those three brothers who go with him. Now, is it that they, those... And so when he goes to give the spoils back to Sodom, you can see it there in verse 24. He goes, um, but the men who came with me, and her uh, Eskol and uh, Mamre, they can take their share. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking anything from you. You can have all your stuff back. Uh, but these guys, they can keep what they want, right? Because they're entitled to that. Now, was the 318, was that um, including those guys or not? I don't know. I can't work that out. Makes for a cooler story if, it's, if it is all of them all together. And my guess is that's probably the case because Abram's household isn't probably going to be that big that he has 318 fighting men in his family, Um, you know, considering he hasn't had any sons yet and, yeah, it's not that huge a thing. But you never know, yeah. I I just, I don't know for sure one way or the other. Any other questions? Yeah, Lee. Yep. So he's like, you're on my side. Yep. King of Sodom doesn't, and that we shouldn't be um, worrying about categories, but yep. about do people know who God is? Yep. And is God working with them? And could you elaborate a bit on yep. how we know if someone knows who God is? Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because as you were asking the question, I went, I was going to come back to yeah, that, and I didn't in the thing. And so I'm glad. That's why we have question time. So, I, you know mistakes I make. There are some things about Christian doctrine that we kind of, if you like, the, the, the uh, metaphor is uh, having a hand open. That is, there are things that we can put in there or take out and that sort of thing. Or there's, on the other hand, there's hands closed. There are things that we can't compromise on, right? In the hand open, things are, for example, how long does our church service last? You know, we go for an hour. In Africa, they go for six. Uh, in, I think there are other places where they'll go for half an hour. It, it kind of depends. How uh, so there are things like that in that open-handed kind of thing. Anyone want to give me another open-handed issue? Music. Yeah, what type of music? So uh, we come here, I'm playing guitar, it's just kind of casual. Uh, there's another church I work for in the morning. They have a full-on choir, they have an organ. It's in the process of being remade and it's going to be a huge big ceremony when that gets remade and that's the thing. So it's going to be different types of music, doesn't really matter. In Africa, for that six hours, a lot of it is singing. One-hour sermon, five hours of singing. Uh, so there are open-handed issues and there are closed-handed issues. I think some of the closed-handed issues are things like, uh, who is Jesus? Jesus is God, he has become a man, and, he, um, and so he is the God-man. If, you, if we start talking, if we start messing with those categories, I think we're not in, that, we're not in the same ballpark, we are not together on that. Uh, Jesus' resurrection, another key issue. Uh, that The Bible is the, the authority by which God speaks. Uh, I'm trying to think of any other major categories. Sorry? Sin, uh, that people are inherently 
rebellion, uh, in rebellion against God, that we're fundamentally, we're not good people, but actually we're people who need to be saved and redeemed. That, that the, the method by which we are redeemed is through Jesus' death on the cross. His sacrifice pays the penalty for our sins so that we can go free. There's a whole bunch of... There are some that get a little uh, vague in the middle of, you know, whether it's an open-handed or a close-handed issue, and we need to do some hard work on that. Uh, I'm trying to think of one of those categories. Uh, my mind's gone blank, but yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the role of women in, in ministry uh, is one of those ones. I think it, it, it can be a close-handed issue or an open-handed issue, depending on what the issue is. So if it's an issue of... I've talked to some who say it's... it's um, uh, I think women should be able to do whatever they want in, in ministry because there are some parts of the Bible that we shouldn't listen to. I mean, OK, we're starting to mess now with the authority of the Bible. That's, that's not negotiable. There are some people who say, oh, I think women should have uh, different roles in ministry because um, of the way that we structure church and how preaching is understood and stuff like that. That I think, OK, I'm, I'm happy maybe to disagree with you on that one, but it depends on why we're being disagreeing, why the disagreement's there. Yep. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yep. Any other questions, comments? Yeah, Paul. Sure, yep. With that Parramatta, we're sort of like thinking about how we reach subcontinentals as like, you know, kind of the mission of what we're doing there. The first person that works in, walks in is a Cambodian girl. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, we, you know, we're trying to reach subcontinental people, but you're from Cambodia. Do we just go, oh, like, we're not that interested in you? Do we, like, not care? It's like, obviously, we, you know, share the gospel with you. Yeah. But it's like, you know, we could have just gone... Yep. Yeah, it's a very much open-handed thing. So this wonderful girl just walked in and said, look, I don't really know much about the Bible. Can I come and join you guys? And we're going, that's why we're here. We want you, we want you to know Jesus. So, yep. Good. Uh, last call. Any other questions, comments? No. Um, uh, Craig is going to lead us in prayer. There he is there. Yep. Thanks.